rambling in Havana I took a little risk Send lawyers, guns and money Dead, get me out of this Welcome everyone to the 40th Matt Jones podcast. We've been doing these a long time and now we're at number 40 and that's a monumental podcast I guess. So we're going to bring on one of my good friends, probably I would say my best media friend, Bomani Jones from ESPN is going to join us. And if you've listened to Bomani before, you know he's going to talk about like a million different things, so it should be good. Um, I just wanted to give you a little update. Next week, we'll do a few more. We've got, I guess I have, what, two, three full weeks before we have vacation, and we're right now filling up uh, spots for our radio show. During We've got some good, good, potentially really good shows coming while I'll be gone. And then, uh, otherwise, you know, heading into the summer. Uh, I was disappointed to see that Marquez, Marquise, whatever it is, Bolden, pick Duke, but I think Kentucky is going to be in fine shape no matter what. They still have a great lineup from top to bottom, and Kentucky and Duke are both loaded next year. I wish they were playing each other because I think it would be really good to see those teams go at it, but they may end up doing it in championship games, so it should be a lot of fun. Before we get to Bomani, I want to say this edition is sponsored by Touch of Modern. Touch of Modern is probably my favorite place to shop for doodads and gadgets. If you go to touchofmodern.com, they have absolutely everything you would want. Sometimes when I'm uh, when, when I'm just sitting around, I'll look at it and I'll go, "Okay, I think I'll just go ahead and buy that right there." It is the uh, it, it is my favorite place to shop for. They have you know lamps. They'll have uh, uh, electronic gadgets. They'll have some clothes, etc. Just all kinds of things at touchofmodern.com. If you go check it out right now, you can download the app or you can go to their website. Just looking at it here, they have watches, uh, shoes clocks, all kinds of things, and a lot of art. Some of the art I get is from there as well. So check out touchofmodern.com. Download the app. Uh, look around. I promise you, you'll find something you like, and you'll probably buy it, and then you'll get mad and say, Matt, why did you make me go buy something at touchofmodern.com? That's how you know it's successful. So with that, let's call up our good friend, Bobani Jones. All right. Now happy to be joined as we head into the weekend by my good friend, Bomani Jones. Bomani, how are you, my friend? Hey, man, no complaining. What's going on with you? You know, uh, not a lot. I saw yesterday on Twitter you were having quite the Twitter war with another person that I drives me nuts, our, uh, Clay Travis. Uh, how'd that go down? Yeah, but see, that wasn't a war, though. Like, let's, let's see, this is, this is like a very important point to me because I'm out of my own business. I really don't have any idea what's going on, and people wind up in my mentions, and I follow the, the, uh, the trail, and it gets back to Clay, and I got... You know, whatever. So um, apparently, this poll comes out uh, in the Washington Post that says that ninety percent of the Native Americans polled that if people self-identify as Native Americans, they polled them. Ninety percent of them said that they. I don't think they exactly said that they were not offended. I forget the exact wording, but it's been appropriated at the very least to saying that they were not offended by the name Redskins of the football team in Washington. And so Clay said something that says that 90% aren't offended, but Bomani Jones is. Now, it's worth noting that 10% are. So, um, you know, there's that. It's, uh, there, it's not as though there are not Native Americans who are offended by that name. But the next thing I know, this thing is, like, all to come about me. And I think he called me a racist because I thought the name was inappropriate and do not say it and think it should be changed. 
and somehow they made me a racist, which I can't actually say I don't like fully <laughs> understand. Yeah, that, that's, uh, all, that's interesting logic. You know, that, that, that yeah. argument about the Redskins is something I hear a lot, and I don't have a strong position, but I would take – I always wonder this. Why is it that sometimes people just want to say things – that seem to be rude. Now, if I, you know, I mean, I think the ninety percent matters, but at the same time, like, why say? Why do people want to say terms that could offend anyone? I don't really get that. What is our desire to want to do that? Yeah. Now, I will say this: um, I do think that the ninety percent matters, but I also think you have to ask yourself the question that if ninety percent said that they found the name offensive and thought it should be changed. Would those people who now are like, look at the 90% say, well, you know what? 90% said the opposite, right? Like, it's not, it's not as though that, like, that statistic is being evaluated purely by all people on all sides. But, no, that, I, I do believe that there is a significant segment of the population who simply refuses to be told they're not allowed to do something. Like, that's it. Like, you're not allowed to do it. That's boom. That, that, that's, that's where I think the line winds up. I think part of it is with Daniel Snyder. Snyder and let nobody tell him what to do with his team. That team was named that when he rooted for it as a child, and he's one of those people who grew up as an irrational fan of his home team. And nobody is going to tell him what to do with that name. Nobody. And I think there are a lot of people that are operating on a similar premise that they're just not going to let anybody tell them what to do in this situation. Because, I mean, let's just say you change the name of the team. What, what, what's different? Like, like, why is the grip on it so tight? Or do, or do what, or do what Tony Kornheiser always used to say: just make the logo a potato. Yeah, right. You know, like you know, something to that, right? But like, I can tell you why this is an issue that I think is important to me. The answers on why this issue is important to people on the opposite side; those get to be a little bit more specious. Well, you, I think you. Do you think Clay pointed you out because you wore that shirt? In the on on TV on Mike and Mike, uh, I suppose that's possible. I, I mean, I can't honestly purport to know exactly what his rationale is on it. I do think that everybody should keep in mind before they ascribe too much to my motives that I'm not sure I can exactly discuss the public. But um, you haven't heard me do a whole lot of talking about that issue. You know what I mean? Like it's not as though that happened, and then I spent the next. I guess that now was a month and a half ago, um, it's not as though I spent the last six weeks like trumpeting this cause over and over again. I mean, I did a radio segment about it the day before that nobody noticed, and then that happened. But I also think, I think at this point, I can be an easy, he's not the only person that makes these decisions. They go come try to hammer me and get a little bit of attention off of it. Um, well, that's the other thing. He, he does that to you. I mean, you and I have the same frustration with Clay. All right, so and Kentucky fans have known Clay for a long time because of his Tennessee connection. But you and I have the same frustration with him, which is he is a smart dude who has decided to essentially play this character to rile people up to be, hey, we can be rude and then go after people. And he uses you as, I think, one of his sort of targets. And I'm sure knowing you, Bomani, you can't like that, especially coming from a dude like him. Yeah, no, no, no. I generally ain't just here for people to be banging on me. Like that's just not <laughs> what it. That, that, you know, that, 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 that's not that's not really in my wiring. And and I I also think contrary to what most people think, I actually let a lot slide. Like you know me 
people don't make me mad with this stuff. Yeah, you, you don't know, get like, mad. It's not as though, I've seen you mad yeah, one time. Like, one time have I seen you mad with, with Feinbaum. That's the only time I've ever seen you mad. Yeah, yeah but like this stuff, I, I, I'm not mad about these things. I'm fascinated by it because this is all still relatively new to me, and I came into whatever this notoriety is that I have in my early to mid-30s. Like, I was a pretty formed individual by that point. I know that most of these people that send this crazy stuff to me, they're not sending it to me. They're sending it to the guy on television. Yes, yes. Right? And that's like, an important distinction. Guy. That is important. Like, they don't see you as a person. You have to remember, that is important. Right, right. They don't. And so I am just amazed by the fact that people get so mad and make this decision. Because what Twitter has done is, the reason most people, I think, got on Twitter was honestly because of the access that it gave them to the people that they consider to be celebrities, right? So I remember, like, when I first got on, um, I was dating this woman who's a she's a foodie. Like, she really, really cares about food. And, like, what drew her there was that the chefs were tweeting out, like, menus, like, excuse me, recipes and 140 characters, right? Yeah. You know, and so you've got this, and you can ask questions, and you might get a response. Like, think about how much easier it is in 2016 to talk to what you would consider to be a famous person than it was even, you know, 10 years ago. Yes. They, just because you can, like, kind of get there. And so now people, where they used to send, like, angry letters to the editor <laughs> or they used to fire yeah. off emails and stuff like that, they come to your Twitter account and they're like, yeah, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to set you straight and everything because they really feel like, but you seem to enjoy to the guy on TV. But you seem to all right. So so for years, I used to when people came after me, I used to go right back after them on Twitter. And a couple years ago, my friend, the turkey hunter, Jason, said to me, "Dude, you got to stop doing that because all you're doing is just giving them the satisfaction of riling you up or thinking they riled you up. You still do that. You're a lot bigger than I am. Why do you do that?" Because I'm funny and I say funny things about these people. <laughs> like, I firmly believe that anybody who follows me, like, you might get annoyed by the volume of it. I understand that. But at the same time, I think that you have to have an objective appreciation for how quickly I am able to eviscerate these people, do it with a smile, and go right back to whatever it is in the world that I was talking about before it happened. So they're right? almost like, props for I, you to make comments and jokes, etc. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's funny stuff. And the, the, there's another level of it, though, that I think has certain... Like, not all those crazy people are outliers, right? Yeah, like, some people believe the same things as the folks that I skewer. They're just too sophisticated to say it yeah. or too smart to say it directly to me. So I think that we have this general tendency where we take these people and we treat them like they're just these wackos and that not everybody thinks like that or it's not that many people that feel like that when there are a lot of people that feel like that. And some of them need to see that what they think is ridiculous. Now, okay, so with, that brings me to Clay. And I, I know you don't like to talk about him in particular because I think it gives him too much credibility. But I do think he has become, at least on the Internet, a figure that he has clearly seen that there are this group of people he, he, that he, I call, him, I call him King Frat Bro, that he sort of is going to be in, the leader of, that sort of, well, we can say whatever we want, we can be as rude as we want, and anybody that disagrees is a wimp, PC person. 
And what's interesting to me about that is that's not what he believes. He actually used to be this like he used to be this big liberal, and I think he still is. I think he's just playing a character. But then he he really seems to like picking at you particularly. And that's why do you think that is? Ah, I don't really have an answer for that. I don't so okay, I think this is something about me as a person that you understand that most people, I think, view opposite. But it gets me in trouble from time to time, which is, I don't think I'm a big deal. No, you're right. Right? Like, yeah. You know, and so, like, I heard the podcast you did with Joel, where you both made a point that I actually had to kind of consider. It's been something I've really struggled with for a lot of my life, which is, I can say things to people that can hit them very heavy, and they hit them heavy in large part because of how they receive the opinion coming from me. But I don't think my opinion matters that much, so I can get myself into trouble because it's almost like, I mean, you make an argument, it's kind of like a child not knowing his own strength or something like that. Like, I just don't think that who I am or what I think is really that important. I can say it with the level of confidence that I do, because I don't think it's that important, right? I'm one person with an opinion. There are lots of people that have opinions. My opinion is no more valuable than theirs, but at the same time, their opinion is no more valuable than mine. And so I'm going to just go ahead and say it, and then we go, right? Like, that's just, I mean, like that, that's the way that I see myself. So the idea that somebody might think that I'm a person to target in order to get a certain level of attention it's a little confusing. Like, I was talking to Dan about this once, and we were talking about somebody else, and his his argument was that if you want to go after, like, there, there's a range of things about me. I've got, like, you call it a bushel of characteristics, where if you want to go after the young guy, you can go after me. If you want to go after the black guy, you can go after me. If you want to go after the liberal guy, you can draw the conclusion from black and then decide you want to go after me, even though I don't really talk about politics very much at all. I think people might be surprised at some of those things. Um, so I just think I'm the guy on TV. So once you become the guy on TV, people are like, which guy on TV are you? But and see, the th- here's the other thing about you. you are. Here's the other thing about you. Okay, so I I, 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 I'm, how do, I don't know how I say this that doesn't come off bad, not about you, but in general. But this is, I do think, the case. You speak with such confidence, and you have such credibility in the media world. People look at you, and I think almost every person in media, even if they don't know you, say, that dude is a star, that dude's bright, etc., that this is kind of what happened with Greg. Like, you don't realize that when you say something, it hits them hard because they think everybody's looking at him and everybody agrees with Bomani. What's weird about Clay is, like, I think he wants you to give him val. I think he wants you to give him validation, to be like, all right, we may disagree, but Clay's smart. And he tries to pick at you like a little kid trying to get a girl to like him. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. And I just... I used to know him, Bomani, before he was this character. I knew him 10 years ago when a buddy of mine and he went to law school. And and unlike with you and Greg, where I like you both and I wanted you to get along, this is different. Like, I just, I'm surprised you don't punch him in the face, to be honest with you. Because if, if I were you, I would do that. Well, you know, I think the interesting thing that kind of gets lost in this is the point that I make all the time when people ask, 
you know, what my frustration is there. It's actually a very complimentary frustration to have. Yes. Is that I think he's a very bright man. And it makes me raise some questions about, like, some of these other things. But I think fundamentally that he's bright. Like, I don't, I don't have much of a desire to insult him. Because, honestly, I don't know him well enough to insult him. Like, I could, I could raise some legitimate criticisms about his approach and how he comports himself professionally. But I don't have any insult, really, to offer about the dude. I don't. I, just, I mean, I just don't know him like that. I honestly don't follow his work closely enough to really give you too many itemized, you know, impressions of what I, you know, of, of what I think about him. But it's like, I'll always say that he's a bright dude. So, you know, from there, we can have, like, a bright, intelligent conversation. Like, one, one thing I, I think that people perceive about me that, I mean, I, I understand to a degree why people feel this way. So, I, I don't say it offends me, but it does make me wonder if people are really paying attention. It's this idea that I can't handle people disagreeing with me. Like, I've known you now for 10 years. We disagree a lot. Yep. Yeah, we've never we've never like actually been mad at each other. Like no. the conversation might get a little bit heated or whatever it is, but you can tell me something that I don't agree with, and if it makes sense, I will tell you. Okay, that's interesting. Like I hadn't thought about that. Like I have no problem in doing that. So this this isn't like a matter of just like oh this guy disagrees with me, so I had these gigantic problems with him. No, I don't see the world that way. I just don't fully understand like. If I'm the guy to come at, that's fine, but I'm not going to do that much fight back in this case. I don't have anything to gain from it. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, let me switch gears. Let's talk a little basketball for a minute. Uh, you know, the, the Carl Towns, I know you watch, you watch a ton of NBA. Carl Towns had one of the most historic uh, rookie years in NBA history. You, 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 you know the game historically. Now, how good do you think he was this year? And if I'm Bomani Jones and I can have Carl Towns or Anthony Davis for the rest of their career, who am I taking? Ooh, see, this is an interesting one. So the thing about Towns is every now and then we have a player that like legitimately evolves the paradigm of what a player at a position can do. And that's not simply somebody who just has like physical characteristics that are uncommon to find at that position. So, for example, Tracy McGrady is a six foot eight um, two guard, but he didn't like change the paradigm. And now everybody's like, "Man, I got to find me a six foot eight point guard, uh, two guard." Magic Johnson, six foot nine point guard, that's unlike anything we'd ever seen. But it didn't really like usher in the need to have a giant point guard, yes. right? Like you look at the point guards now; they're not looking like Magic Johnson. The thing about Towns is Towns is the rare unicorn that it looks like you're going to need in the future of the NBA, which is a guy who can protect the rim and a guy who can shoot three, right? So you can't put together a lineup that's so small that it takes Carl Towns out of the game because he's quick enough to go out there and guard your small ball five. He's quick enough to come up and pick and roll and stop Steph Curry. Like, yes. like he's that quick, but he also can play with his back to the basket and all of this. So it is possible that when people are looking at big men and the big men they're developing, where they're looking at them like, look, okay, here's what you're going to have to be able to do because there's going to be guys like Carl Towns out there. Like, There's a chance that he could truly expand the paradigm of what we thought a center was. So when people talk about, you know, there are no more centers in the NBA, yeah, the position has evolved, but what if Carl Towns is like the next step in the evolution of what a center can be? The tricky thing there is, 
how many people are ever going to be capable of doing all the things that Carl Anthony Well, how many have ever been capable before? I mean, I, I look at it, and he's like, he's Kevin Garnett, but he's strong. You know, I mean, he's big. Right. Like, how many of those guys and exist? Garnett, and Kevin Garnett never became the three-point shooter that Carl Towns did. True. Like, Kevin Garnett is seven feet tall and can legitimately play two-guard in the NBA. Like, that's where I see the difference, is that the things that skew toward guard, like not just wing, but guard, Kevin Garnett could do those things. Kevin Garnett had the back-to-the-basket post game that was just absolutely incredible. But defensively, like as a big man, as a rim protector, Carl Towns, I think, is better, yeah, going no to doubt. Be better than uh, Kevin Garnett ever was. And Kevin Garnett never really got to a point where he's at 24 feet and you got to worry about the fact that he's going to shoot the three. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. So back to the thing. So is Carl is, – is you take him over Anthony for the rest of his career? See, it's tricky because I still lean toward Davis because I think that Davis is going to be a better overall defender. But the question is, will Anthony Davis ever get to the point of actually having a three-point shot? Now, if we stay in line with the idea that he used to be a guard, it should come, right? Like, there, there, there should be a reason to think that he can develop at least a shot that's enough to make him more of a threat with the other things that he is able to do. So, like, I'm still there with Anthony Davis as it stands. I'm, I'm still there. I feel like he's a better rebounder, too. I could be wrong. He is, and, he's, and, and, and he, there's no rim protector that I've seen like him. I mean, if he if he if that's what I mean, he was the best at Kentucky, and I, I mean, I think he'll be up there. I don't know, but oh god, the, the, he is a shot blocker. Like I'll never forget when he blocked that shot to beat Carolina. Oh yeah, um, in December of 2011, I asked John Henson afterwards because remember he blocked the shot and then nobody moved, like the ball fell, which is like what happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I asked about it, and Henson was just like, I was shocked. <laughs> like they just, couldn't be, they just couldn't believe it happened. Yeah, the ball just—if you remember—the ball just sort of stood there. Like there was still like four seconds on the clock, and no one did anything. <laughs> right? They, I'm telling you, Henson told me, and, and you know, John Henson is a great shot blocker in his own right. You know, like, yeah. With that game, probably had the two best shot blockers in the country right then, and John Henson was quicker as quick as anybody I could remember in getting off the ground to go block somebody's shot, and he couldn't believe it happened. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a that was a heck of a moment in Rupp. One of the better ones in recent years. Cal says uh, uh, that he's going to retire at Kentucky. I, I now, for the first time, believe him. Do you? I mean, they said they're going to do a thirty for thirty on Cal. If you're Bomani Jones making the thirty for thirty on Cal, what's your angle? The angle, huh? Did you see the one they did up Bill McCartney in Colorado? I did not, no. It, it was very much so uh, Bill McCartney as father figure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, all the guys. And, you know, there's, there's a lot there with McCartney. But McCart- and McCartney is not a spotless figure. Like, it was kind of fascinating to see because McCartney is in the documentary, you know, talking about getting caught cheating on his wife and stuff like that. This is a guy that does promise you. Yes. You know, so, like, there's, you know, there's an interesting dynamic there. I would do it around. I mean, I think Cal's a good dude. He's certainly a flawed one, but he's a good dude. But I think the good dude part often gets lost, but also the good dude part, I think, goes into the flawed dude part, at least in the context where morality is largely evaluated by the NCAA. Because I'll never say anything about Cal cheating, but nobody does great better. And, like, mastering this game is about understanding how to do great. That's that's what this is. It all runs together. 
And so that's the part that I think is interesting. And also emphasize the fact that, yes, they went to, he went to the Final Four at UMass. They had Marcus Canby. That was all they had was Marcus Canby. Yeah. They went to Sweet 16 with a team. The best player was Lou Rowe. Lou Rowe, your man. And what were those those two? They had those Puerto Rican guards. What were their names? Yeah. Uh, uh, Travieso and Padilla. Nice. Well done. Travieso and Padilla. I mean, that's the thing that, see, my angle, you hit on my angle. My angle would be this dude who always sees himself as like an outsider to the world, like to the, like the, you know, this outsider, this rebel guy. And then all of a sudden he gets handed the keys to the kingdom and how that, that interaction, because I think he still sees himself as that outsider like he was at UMass. Yeah. And that's a fascinating job to give somebody as insecure as he is. Yeah, well, he is he is insecure in some ways. I mean, I, I don't think people realize that, but I, I, I do agree with you. I think he is. Do you think he'll be fine finishing his career here and not scratching the NBA itch? I do, and I think, I think there's a couple things there, right? I think part of it is, I do think he cares about, like, helping kids. Yes. And that's not what the NBA is for. Right? Like, that's, that, that's not what that game is for. Number two, I think coaching in college is, especially if you enjoy interacting with the players, is a better job. I mean, there are fewer games. Yeah. Yeah, there's the recruiting element of it right now. But Cal ain't got to do with so much of that, like, that, that pound of the pavement. Well, you know, he's having you know, to do like, more of it, man. I mean, this whole Duke thing. I mean, kid yesterday picked – Duke over Kentucky, Marcus Bolden, but he's lo- for the first time since he's been at Kentucky, he's losing guys to a school, and I don't think he likes it. This whole, I think you're going to see a lot more Cal versus Shashevsky kind of personal stuff. Do you, I mean, I love that. Do you like that as a rivalry? Yeah, I, I, I do think it is interesting um, because those dudes are more similar in ways than people realize. And in the ways they might be surprised are a little bit different, shall we say. Um, my, well, from what I can tell, for example, the relationships that Calipari has with his players are a bit warmer and fuzzier than the relationships that Krzyzewski has with his. I agree, but people don't realize that, Bomani. You were around that program. Those Duke players do not walk out the door loving K, right? Some do, but it's not – it ain't uni- – it's not like Dean Smith, right? Yes, yes. Like, it's, when Krzyzewski when, when dies, it ain't, they ain't going to be the long line of people with the stories about Krzyzewski in the way that there were the stories about Dean Smith and, like, the look on people's faces when they talk about Dean Smith. Like, it, it, it isn't going to be that. Cal's is going to be a little more interesting because Cal, Cal, is, Cal is selling something far more 21st century than Dean Smith. Cal is selling, I'm going to get rich, right? <laughs> now, he's not only concerned with the ones that he's going to get rich, but look, he's like, look, man, there's, there's no the, – the, the game that Dean Smith was playing was different. The money in the NBA wasn't what it was. Like in 1975 or 1965 or even 1985, the money in the NBA wasn't what it is now, so you couldn't have these guys betting all in on the NBA. Like I was, it was a it's a it's a much different uh, lottery now than it was. So, and what your decisions are, the utility function is completely different. And with Cal, I mean, those guys seem to really really care about them after they're gone. Look, Grant Hill, Grant, right back. Grant Hill stood next to myself and a couple other people. He wasn't talking to me, but he was talking to the other people. And I heard it, and he and he repeated it for me. He said, 
He was like, look, I like Coach K. But you remember when they had the thing at the Hall of Fame when Cal Perry went up there and all of his players stood behind him as he was getting inducted? Grant Hill essentially said, if this were Coach K, he couldn't get everyone to come do that. And I thought that was very telling for a dude for him to say. Well, I think that Cal is very much so aware of something that's very important, which is I'm here because I can get good players. Good players are why I am where I am. That's important to know, and that's important to tell people. Like, you have to, you have to acknowledge the fact. That, and, I, and I think Cal's a better X and O's coach than he gets credit for being. But you're here because of the players, yeah. right? And you have to show that love back. You have to show that love back. To me, I think it is just flat-out disrespectful to believe that the reason that we're here is you. <laughs> no, we're here for the players. Yeah. But so many college coaches believe it's them. I mean, like, that's – Especially yeah. the old school guys. I mean, the younger guys are a little better about it, I think. But the old school guys, it's all about them. I mean, that's been that's why so many of them failed in the pros, don't you think? Yeah, and like it's funny. Like think about Bobby Knight, for example, right? And I think one thing that we forget about with Bobby Knight when trying to understand how Bobby Knight became, you know, Bobby Knight. That dude had two undefeated regular seasons before he turned thirty six. Yeah, that's true. Right, like 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 you know, like it's hard to think about Bobby Knight as being a young man. But that 75 and 76 Indiana team loaded, right? I think we all agree that team was loaded. It just didn't have an NBA star, but those teams had talent. The uh, 81 team had Isaiah Thomas, the 87 team. That one was not quite as talented as the other ones were. And so what that does is that leads you to believe if you've only had Isaiah Thomas as your one NBA star, who, by the way, left hating him, um, <laughs> yeah. you, be- you believe that the reason that all of this is happening is because of you, right? Like, you're the, common, you're the common link between all these things that have happened. What's funny about that with Knight is if you go back and look at Knight's record year to year, it's actually very spotty. Like, there are the great years, but you know, you never hear, you hear, you hear people talk about Knight winning three titles, but you never hear people talk about how many Final Fours Knight went to. Yeah, didn't he go because, to, what, like, four? Yeah, I think it was four. I yeah. think it was four. It might have been five, but I think it was four. Because there are years in there not making the tournament. Like, Smith went to the Sweet 16 every year from 1981 until 19, 1993. Those, yeah, those are the years. In 94, they lost in the second round. They went to the Final Four. Smith uh, retired in 97. Went to the Final Four in 91, 93, 95, and 97. Like, all the way through, they were going. You know why? Because Carolina had players. They yeah. had players. You go look at Knight from year to year, sometimes they're all right, sometimes they're not. Why? Because he didn't seem to understand that you need players. It's not that much about you. Like, Izzo figures out a way to do it without players, right? But you need players. Well, you know, Cal, in some ways, I've wondered if he is the inheritor of the Smith legacy because, you know, he what he has done, uh, this year notwithstanding, he had a six-year run before this year where he went out of those six years, five years to the Elite Eight, four years to the Final Four, three years to the National Championship game, and then had a title. Historically, only two other coaches have ever done that, Wooden and Kay. But I don't. But the, the, the narrative is, well, he, he, you know, he can't coach, he can't win, whatever. I mean, he had, that, that is an amazing run. Four Final Fours in five years has only happened three times in history. His last nine years, are effectively Jim Beheim's career. <laughs> That's true. You're exactly right about that. 
I mean, that, that's not an exaggeration. I don't, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head anymore. I used to be able to recite them all. But you start, I mean, and of course, the, the improbable Syracuse Final Four this year. But if you started looking at Elite Eights and Final Fours, and I think Elite Eights are a metric that are un, that's underused in determining how good a coach is. I totally agree with you. Elite Eight, yeah, Elite Eight is saying that you won a game in two different weekends of the tournament. Yes. And you also, generally speaking, had to have had a good regular season to get there. Not always. Sometimes a team like Kent State will get there. But in general, you had to have put yourself in a position to be seated well enough to get where you needed to go to get to an Elite Eight. Right, right. Like, there's a stretch where Bayheim had been to those three championship games and won the one national championship. Um, they had only been to one other Elite Eight that whole time. Yeah. That's, like, crazy to think. That there Is that were right? They had only been to one? one that's amazing. At that time. At that time. Yeah. Like, you know, they've been to a couple Final Fours and some things have happened since. But at that time, like, that was an amazing statistic to consider. And that held until, like, 2011 or 2012 or something like that. Yeah, like, he, went in, he went you know, in 2013. He went when Louisville won. Yeah, that was the last time. Yeah. So, I mean, like, so when you start looking at what Cal has pulled off at Kentucky, I mean, he's not the first coach in the history of Kentucky. No. But, you know, mean, like, if you do those nine years, though, if you go nine years – Go back to his last two years in Memphis. In those nine years, just thinking off the top of my head, seven of nine years, Elite Eight, five of nine Final Fours, four, five of nine Final Fours, four championship games in one title. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and, and understand, man, winning in Memphis ain't that easy. And not only <laughs> no. winning in Memphis not that easy, I think something that gets forgotten about his time at Memphis is he didn't have great players. No, no, he didn't. He had Rose and Tyreek, and that's really it. Chris Douglas Roberts was a good yeah, college like, player, but, you know. Yeah, like you look at that 08 team, Derrick Rose, and I mean, the, the other NBA player on that team is Joey Dorsey. Yeah, barely an NBA player. Um, yeah. Let, all right, let me ask you on NBA for a second, because I want, you know, I hear everybody, I listen to a lot of Bill Simmons' podcasts, and I like Bill Simmons, but I also think he thinks he knows a lot more about basketball than he knows. And one of the things he's always on this 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 kick is, well, basketball's changed with the Golden State Warriors, blah, 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 blah. Is that true in your mind, or is it just two of history's greatest shooters happen to be on the same team, so they're going to be able to do it one way? Or has basketball fundamentally changed by what the Warriors do? Well, I think the NBA well, – I think what the Warriors have done is they have pointed out some changes that have been happening in this league gradually that we hadn't considered. Because we have to remember that the, the rules in the NBA, as they were when you and I were growing up, are vastly different than the rules are now. Um, the illegal defense rules and everything else, they had to change it because the game got to be so ISO heavy because players just got to be so good. Yeah. Right? They're like, nobody can guard me in isolation. You get a whole generation that legitimately can say, nobody can guard me in isolation. And then the other the option for the defense is to push them around, and then it turned into ugly basketball. So they went to rules that were more in line with the international game and more in line with the college game and let people zone up and all that stuff. So what I think that did was it de-emphasized the center position because it used to be so hard to guard centers. They're standing four or five feet away from the rim, and you've got to come from all the way across the court to double-team, right? So yes. the center position was where you went. So like a guy like Jaleel Okafor, we dropped him off in 1985. He averages 30 points a game walking in the door. Really? Walking yeah. in the door, he averages 30 points a game. That's not the game anymore. Like Shaq is probably the last of those guys, right? 
And, you know, Tim Duncan played power forward slash center, but you had to be kind of that to make it work. So now we get to – So what about, like, Dwight Howard? Now. Are you saying, like, Dwight Howard's just in the wrong generation? Right. And see, Dwight is interesting because Dwight is in his proper generation in the sense that he's really good at playing pick-and-roll basketball, which is emphasized more greatly in this game now because, because the floor has been spread out. But he wants to be a postman like he would have been back in the day, even though he's only about 6'9". Yeah. So, like, he doesn't know that he's in the time that he should be in right now. <laughs> but, what, you know, it's a really interesting thing. So, but either way, you take all that away. And now you put the Warriors out here, and the Warriors at one point this year, I looked it up, like half the team was shooting 40% from three. Half the team was shooting 40% from three. Like Brandon Rush is in a contract year. He was shooting 40% from three. Not everybody's going to be able to put together a roster that shoots 40% from three. The Spurs won 65 games this year playing much more of a traditional style of basketball with, you know, big men. So it's not necessarily that basketball is totally different than it was. But I think that people believe that it'll be easier for them to find 40% three-point shooters, and then maybe you could put together a team on the cheap. Because what the Warriors did that I think every team has to be jealous of is they put this team together without any high lottery. Yeah, I mean, they picked Curry was their highest pick. Clay Thompson was, you know, Draymond's a second-rounder. Harrison Barnes was considered a flop in college. I mean, yeah, they really did draft a team no high picks, really. Yeah, like I do around the horn with Bob Ryan, and he always says that he looked at the Warriors as a team that had too much talent to be performing the way they did when Mark Jackson was the coach. Um, they won a playoff series in Mark Jackson one year, then the next year they lost in seven. They lost in seven to the Clippers during the Donald Sterling series, right? Yeah, but that was a fifty-win team, and I thought that was a fifty-win roster. Like I, I mean, when people were talking about firing Mark Jackson. Everybody, I mean, there was, a, I mean, people who knew understood what the reasons were, but just about everybody else was like, wow, this seems to be strange. They won 50 games. How yeah. much more could you possibly want out of this roster, right? I mean, who knew that Steph Curry was going to turn into this guy? What guy? This guy. Like, like who knew that that was what it was going to be? But I agree with you. I think that this is in large part unique, but at the same time, you look at what the Cavaliers are doing, they're basically mimicking what Golden State was doing. Yeah, no, they are, but they – well, be interesting to see. Like, all right, so there are guys coming in the league. Well, like Kentucky's Jamal Murray, Devin Booker, who's in Phoenix. I mean, Devin Booker is probably he couldn't have come in the league at a better time, right? Like, I mean, this is the perfect time for Devin Booker right. and Jamal Murray. Guys like that, this is their time to play basketball. Yeah, no, this is. I mean, the thing is, the math, man. People have figured out that they've undervalued the three-pointer, and so teams are going to shoot more three-pointers because the three-pointer. I mean, basketball has a problem, and the problem is that three is fifty percent more than two. Yes, right. So and, the game is not just, and it's not fifty percent harder. And it's not fifty percent harder. Right. It was never designed with the three-pointer in mind. So it was designed with these simple energy: one point four free throw, two points four field goal. That seemed to be reasonable. Then we throw this three out there, and nobody really thought about the math. And if it's going to be three, that line should be farther back because it's just it's just too big of a jump in percentage. And so teams are going to shoot more three pointers because the math dictates that you should shoot more three pointers. That's exactly yeah, that's exactly right. And it just took people that long to uh, uh, to think about. All right, I got some questions for you, and then we'll we'll call it a day. I want I want your take on a couple things. Number one, who is your now, I'm not talking as a player, just as a personality. Who's your favorite 
figure, like who that's an athlete, coach, or whatever, or broadcaster, would you rather listen to than anyone else in sports? And who's your least? Who drives you the the craziest? Leave Clay Travis out of it in terms of athletes. Oh, athletes, the ones I like the most, and the ones that drive me the craziest. Yes. Um. I'll just go with the most because the craziest might work at ESPN, and that'll make my life a little bit too difficult. <laughs> oh, God, um, I can't see who that is, you but, know. but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let me think. The athlete that I like to hear the most talk about sports, it almost kind of goes like sports to sports. Um, hmm. Like basketball. I still like listening to Charles Barkley talk about basketball. Well, see, I wanted to know that. Like, you, you disagree. It's interesting because you and I have talked about Barkley, and I love Barkley. It seems like everybody loves Barkley. But you've always seemed to me ambivalent on Barkley, but you do like him. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not ambivalent on Barkley at all. I think, one, I think Charles Barkley does great television. Yes, he does. Um, num- number two, he's not afraid to be wrong. And, like, I don't think that he says anything recklessly or he says anything just to get a reaction. But he's not afraid that something he says might be wrong. And I think that's a big thing. So, like, the analytics stuff, I think he's more correct than people give him credit for. I just, I wonder sometimes, like, if I could edit some of the things that he says about analytics, if I would turn out to be right. Because he'd be like, you know, what analytics makes Spurs good? And people are like, well, actually, the Spurs use all the analytics. Yeah, they use all the analytics. They need no damn analytics to know the draft him, Duncan. <laughs> well, that's what, right? that's what he like, says, exactly. He's always like, you yeah. don't have to have analytics to know that Steph can shoot, that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, like like you think like you think the Thunder are in this Western Conference <laughs> final right now because of some damn analytics. Like, I bet they got some. You know, I bet they do research, and I bet they use it, but that's at the margin. The reason they are where they are is because they have Durant and Westbrook. Like, the Warriors are a team that kind of throws that off a little bit, except they got the best player in the NBA right now. Yeah, well, analytics tells the Thunder to play Cantor instead of Ibaka, but they're not there unless they have Westbrook and Durant. Exactly. And so I still like listening to Charles and those guys talk about basketball. And the reason I really like listening to them talk about it is they keep it simple, man. Like, we don't need a bunch of statistics to talk about a game while we're watching television at midnight, right? Like, that's not that's, – <laughs> you know, that's just not what we need. And sometimes this game is very, very simple. And, Charles, sometimes I get frustrated because I think he's keeping things too simple. But sometimes it is a breath of fresh air to just be like, no, nah, it's really just this. Did you see when he – the, the night he did the TV with Dwight Howard? That was fascinating to me. Did you yes, see I it? Yes, I did. What did you yeah, think of yeah, that? Yeah, see, the reason – well, it, I thought it was great, and I think, see, the reason that works, I've hung out with Charles a couple of times. Like, I don't know Charles very well. Charles has always been very, very nice and very polite. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody that's better at being famous than Charles. Clark. I agree with he's that. He's, he's been nice. You I've know, met him a few times. He's always nice. Yeah, perfect stranger could come up and meet Charles Barkley, and you might wind up having dinner with Charles Barkley. Like, he is not a flawless man, but his intentions are overwhelmingly good. So when you get Charles Barkley on that set and it's Dwight Howard, um, Charles can ask that question and begin that conversation. And as gruff as Charles can seem to be, it kind of becomes a safe space. Yeah. Because, well, I think Dwight, it comes off like his intentions, he wants the best for Dwight. Is that what you mean, kind of? Yeah. Yeah, I think he wants the best for Dwight. and He's not trying to play gotcha with Dwight. He is going to tell you some things maybe that you don't want to hear, but Charles isn't mean about those things when he does them on television. He, yeah. he's, he's not mean. Like, 
Shaq talking about Dwight Howard. That can be deep. <laughs> well, Shaq like, wasn't there, wasn't he? He wasn't there that night, I, so I that helped. what that would have been like if Shaq had been there. Like, if Shaq there and not Kenny, I very much so wondered how that would have gone. It went better because they had Chuck there. And so I think there's something to be said for the fact that I enjoy watching basketball. I don't need to treat basketball like an intellectual pursuit. <laughs> so I just need all like, I Like, I look up the numbers and I check the analytics and stuff like that, and they help me inform some of my opinions and talk about who's going to win or not. But these games are to be enjoyed. You know, I don't think they are here to be I, – I, they're not here for me to pour over them. I would rather just enjoy them. And I think a guy who analyzes things on the levels that Charles does makes it easier to just enjoy the game because we're not making it much more complex than it has to be. Are you a uh, Cam Newton fan? I, th- I, I, I don't can't remember oh, what yeah. you – what's your what's your Cam Newton take? I mean, I – but it, it seems like people make him controversial, and I don't really know why. He just seems fun. Well, he is, he, he is – of um, exceptional confidence. <laughs> yes, that's fair right? to say, yeah. <laughs> and, see, and see, that's the thing. That doesn't bother me. Like, I am entertained by people with outside egos, just so long as you believe it, right? Like, if you're going to put that out there and you really believe that you're that guy, I'm okay with it. So, like, this year, they get Cam Newton team with no wide receivers. And I was talking to somebody who covered the team, and I was like, well, Cam's got to be furious about this, right? And they're like, no. Cam thinks he should be able to get this done no matter who the wide receivers are, right? Now, that's an amazingly arrogant thing to, to feel, <laughs> but it's also exactly what we want our stars to be like, right? Like, we want the guy who doesn't complain about that. I've been complaining, right? We want the guy who doesn't complain about that. He is that guy. Um, he also smiles a lot, and he is celebratory. Um, and, well, people think he got away with something, and that's a hard thing to be when you're black. People think you got away with something. People think in college, now that they think he got away with something, he smiled all the way through it. All the way through it. That's that interesting. Made a lot so you think people, people feel like he never got his comeuppance. But okay, so why, th- 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 there was a different reaction, though, when the stories came out about Peyton Manning at Tennessee. Wh- I mean, whether or not it was the worst thing in the world, he clearly was being a goober for a little while. Not People want to love him. Is that different? Yeah, yeah. That, that, the, the, thing with, the thing with me with all these guys where I get into trouble with people often is my refusal to assume the best. Yeah. I'm not going to necessarily assume the worst, but every time you assume the best out of somebody and then they get caught up in something, you're like, man, you never know. You never can tell, and then you go out there and you make the same damn mistake over and over. I have you right. okay? Love the, then let me give you the one guy though, because I agree with you. I've always thought people thought too much positive of Phil Mickelson and and Peyton Manning, and I like both those guys, but those two. I, even Bomani can't think of something negative to say about Tim Tebow, can you? Um, I don't have anything negative to say about Tebow. My thing with Tebow though has always been. He is he has lived a life on display, right? Like that's what happens when you daddy somebody, you know. And yeah. in, in his world, his daddy is somebody. A lot of the persona that Tebow had when he was in the NFL, he's a great broadcaster for us. Just to be clear, yeah, he is. Very, a he's a, he's a lot better than I would have thought. He's very good at it. But go ahead. 
Yeah, but you know what, though? Matt Preacher's kid. I wasn't surprised by it at all. He spent so much time in his life speaking to crowds and yeah, talking in truth. front of people. Good point. That, yeah. you know, that I, I thought that this was just right up, like, right up his alley. But I think that people, the thing with Tebow was that I think that he knew what he was doing. And that's fine, right? But if, even if you're, I think this, had, this is the same thing with Steph Curry in part, is just because your brand is built around Jesus doesn't mean it's not a brand. Yeah, but do you do you get the sense though? And again, I, with the caveat of we don't know these people, but I get the sense with him that it seems genuine. Doesn't mean he's not knowing what he's doing, but I I, I get the sense it seems genuine. Well, yeah, you know, I think that his religiosity, I believe, is the term. I believe it's absolutely sincere. Yeah, right. Like like I I, I believe that that and that's central to him. I do believe that that is absolutely sincere. Um. But it was also, like, as a brand, as a package, it was also for sale, right? It was also marketed and cultivated and all these things. And I don't necessarily, I don't begrudge somebody from building a brand around who they actually are. I mean, yeah. I think I do the same thing. Yeah. So, like, I don't begrudge him that, but I do get frustrated with the idea that people don't see that as what is going on. And they get mad at me for being like, look, he's on the hustle just like everybody else. I see. No, that's, that's fair enough. I'm going to take just a second here and interrupt and tell you about uh, our good friends at Vistaprint. If you would like 500 business cards for $9.99, Vistaprint's the way. If you want to make business cards that say you're a banker, a butcher, uh, a tailor, whatever, or a salesperson, nothing's better than Vistaprint for that. 500 business cards. Here's the thing. The promo code is Matt, M-A-T-T. Then they'll deliver them right to your door. You can design it. You can do the front, the back, everything you need right there from Vistaprint. Just make sure to go use the promo code Matt. It helps the podcast out if you do that and people know, hey, he's got the podcast, etc. All right, before I let you go, I know you got to go. Uh, Prince. Um, you know, I know when I, when I saw Prince died, I was sad because I like Prince. But my first thought was the saddest person about this is going to be Bomani Jones because I don't know a bigger Prince fan than you. You were in Paris, I believe, yeah. when it happened. Tell me when you first read it. I know you don't know him, but was there sadness like you knew him? I mean, what was that like for you? No, that was interesting because, like, the the progression of that for me was, you know, they said it's Vitaly a fancy part. People were worried if it's Prince. And I knew somebody who might know something, and so I started putting in calls. And so it became, before the world found out, somebody had let me know what it was. And I was just like, damn. Like, it really was just kind of a, like, damn sort of thing. And um, I started writing something about him, and then I wrote that pretty quick, and then it went up. And You wrote like, that for Playboy, him. right? That was great. Right. The thing you wrote, that was right. great, Thank by God. the way. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, and I didn't, like, it didn't really start to hit me, like, in an emotional way until people started responding to that. Because on one hand, people were just like, oh, my God, I hope you're okay, and da, da, da. And I'm like, I ain't noticed you. <laughs> right, like on one level, like on one on one level, I'm there. You know, I've, I've lost some close friends in a pretty terrible way, so I know how bad it can get. So, like, I'm not necessarily inclined to do that um, for strangers. But then when we started, you know, people started sending stuff back and forth, and I talked to my brother that night on the phone, and that's when it was just kind of like, man, because what it is about an artist is it's less about the music itself. And more about the experiences associated with it, or the people that yes. you shared it with, what yeah. you learned from them, and all of those things. And so, Frank, for me, I was supposed to go to the concert he had in Atlanta. Like uh, the day of the T-shirt, I caught my flight to Atlanta because I was going to go see Prince that night. 
and he canceled the show because they said he had the flu. So oh, so you were supposed to be at that show. Okay, all right, gotcha. Yeah, and so and so he rescheduled it for the following week, and I just you know I couldn't go from Miami to there on a Thursday after I'd taken time off the week before, and so like I was supposed to be there and I missed it, um, and that was like kind of a bummer, just the idea that I kind of had that last that last chance because that's I think the hardest part on this honestly is the idea that I'm just never going to see Prince live again. Like, musically, the things he was starting to do and the place he was going and the comfort he'd have with the old catalog, and it's like, I'm never going to get to see Prince live again. And, like, when I've gone to see Prince, it's been, like, an experience in part because of the people who were there with me. You know, like, one of my homeboys, we I uh, went to see Prince in Vegas at the Hard Rock in 2013 with three of my boys, and one of them sent me a text and was like, yo, I'm glad you made me come because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to say that I saw him live. You know, it was like those sorts of things are just like, man, this is rough. But then there's the selfish part of me that's like, well, we already got the music. Like, we got these CDs. We got these MP3s. That's true. It's still here. Can I tell you, I, I think that I probably had did something that no one else in the world could say when it comes to Prince. I saw print, part of a Prince concert and part of a David Allen co-concert the same night. Wow. First of all, why were you at the David Allen <laughs> Because it was right next to my college. So you have to remember when I was like in college, you didn't I didn't know David Allen Coe. Like when you're when you're in Kentucky, <laughs> right. like you don't think of the like greater manifestations at that stage of your life of listening to music and the uh right. you, you know, and like David Allen Coe to me at that point was like he had that song that I liked, right? The uh uh, the perfect country and western song thingy. Right. So like, so Prince was at Rupp, and I went to see Prince, and then on the way back, stuck my head in the bar where David Allen Coe was, and I remember even at the time thinking that's kind of funny, but in hindsight, when you consider what those two artists mean and represent, it's even funnier that that was the same night. I'd also love to know just what the twenty five thousand at Rupp were like that night. Like that is that is some hell of five people watching right there. <laughs> what the prince? Well, but see, I think Prince is like, and I'm not sure he was like this in the '80s. I mean, I was a kid, so I don't know. But I feel like Prince, like Prince, is there any artist that when they died was more universally loved than him? I mean, all no. yeah. I mean, who who like like I always talk about Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton in the in Reign of Country. Every person I know loves Willie and Dolly. But white people, but Prince is like that right. for all people, right? Right, like that. Like that's what I was thinking. I was thinking like when Paul McCartney died, like Stevie Wonder is going to be a very similar thing. Yeah, but that's true. That's true. People, but but I think for a lot of white people at this point, they know that Stevie Wonder is the right answer, but they don't necessarily <laughs> have the like the you know they don't have the they, they know have, like, superstition and like I just called to say yeah. I love you like they know those two songs. Yeah. Yeah, like I went to see Stevie do songs in the Key of Life in Atlanta about a year and a half ago, and he does the album in order. And I mean, this is like Songs of Key of Life, one of his defining works. And no, and he just does it in order. Nobody really got out their chairs until Sir Duke at track five because it was very clear that that was the first track that most of them actually knew. Yeah, right. So we have the thing. The thing about Prince that's different is the range of people who love Prince, right? Like I read something that Duff McKagan wrote about five years ago about how much he loved Prince and how excited he was to meet Prince. Guns and, and Roses, so, Duff I mean, McKagan? You're talking about Guns and Roses? Yeah. 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 Yeah, he said he had a buddy who was in the punk scene in the early 80s, 
and turned him on to Prince, and then Prince was his guy. So you got Duff McKagan talking that. You got L.A. Reid. Then he comes up, and he's talking about, you know, this and the third, like the range of people who are like, I love Prince. Billy Gibbons, you know, comes and talks about the time that he and Prince were at the diner after the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where Billy Gibbons tries to get him to teach him how to play when Duff cries because Billy Gibbons can't figure out how he did it so fast. You know, like, I mean, nobody could get that from that same range of people. Like, not even Michael Jackson. No, get it from that range of people. No, I agree with you. Yeah, because Michael Jackson's a pop star, and Prince had like rock cred. Yeah, that's the thing. Purple Rain, the success of Purple Rain. I think the part that gets lost is that that is fundamentally a rock. That's a rock and roll album, right? It's a lot of heavy guitars. Pretty much every song that bangs on there is driven by a guitar solo at some point or another. When Dove's Cry is like the forgotten guitar classic, it was very accessible in that sort of way. Can you agree with me though that Purple Rain the movie is terrible? Well, Purple Rain, the movie, I went and saw it in the theater when they re-released it. Okay. You know, they put it out after he died, and yes. I went and saw it. And here's what I could say about Purple Rain, the movie. Prince is good in it. Morris Day puts all of the great comedic performances of all time. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, I agree. Um, but, like, Apollonia is awful. Awful. Like, all those other people trying to act are just dreadful, dreadful, dreadful. And a movie that could certainly not be made now. Like, hey, oh, it's, I'm going to make this movie it's that's disturbing. Be my big star turn. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm going mean, to make my big star turn by slapping my girlfriend around. And yeah. It forgives me at the end for no reason. Yeah, it's disturbing. Like, it's it's terrible. But but back to what you were saying. So, so he's this transcendent artist. And I, I, it was interesting what you said. Like, your sadness is the memories you have when you listen to him and did things, right? Yeah. So that's a big thing, man. No, I, I, especially for somebody like you who cares. I mean, you care about music sort of on a deep level. So here's what I wanted to ask you because I think this is good. you. Everybody knows Purple Rain, When Doves Cry, Raspberry Beret. Give me five songs that people who like Bomani Jones should listen to for Prince. That is not like one of his five or six great ones that everybody talks about oh yeah i can do this uh number one if i was your girlfriend off sign of the time which is just like an incredible lyrical endeavor like it is just brilliant songwriting psychoanalysis everything else and it sounds really really good um we go there i figure this podcast is listened to by a lot of white people therefore adore like adore is in the top five or six for black people not so much for white people I say go for that one. That's the best soul ballad that he ever did. It, 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 everything in every single way. Um, let me think, where else would I go there? Uh, 17 Days. It's a B-side. It's a B-side to When Doves Cry. Like, When Doves Cry at A in 17 Days, that B might be the best A-B like, single anybody's ever done. Because that's just amazing. It's mind-blowing. 17 Days got the dope line. Called you yesterday. You didn't answer your phone. I'm the one that's always lonely. No, you're the one that's always lonely, but I'm the one who's always alone, which is like a real deep, you That's know, a good line. Yeah, notion. that is a good line. Yeah, that's a dope notion to consider. So I'd I say go there. Um, check out... Hmm. So you won't take... Uh, Erotic City. Oh, I, I, know that, I know that song, yes. And <laughs> <laughs> what's your last one? <laughs> oh, goodness. The last one, I would say let me try to get into a little bit of a different era on it so you won't um, go with any of the ones you you don't like the album that i think is underrated i think his diamonds and pearls album has a couple of very good songs i don't no, it I, does i do like i don't love that the reason i don't love diamonds and pearls is diamonds and pearls is the first time 
that I felt like he was kind of like trying to sound more like everybody else was as opposed to being on the vanguard. But Diamonds and Pearls, let me remember what's on it. Well, you oh, got, Diamonds and Pearls got money, got money don't matter tonight. He does have that's money don't matter tonight. That's right. It also has cream. Yes. Which, which is it was and then it has it's a very dirty album actually but i it's it's i but yes yeah, so i i like that did, i think i read you even like bat dance yeah I, the batman album i like the song bat dance i've come to appreciate more but i love the batman album the batman album is like the futuristic james brown i love it. yeah well I, the, the fact that he did an entire soundtrack and were they all originals that's a, that is kind of amazing. I mean, I don't know how many people have ever done that. How many people have ever done that for an entire movie they weren't in? Yeah, but right. A movie like Curtis Mayfield did it for Superfly, right? It's a movie he's not in, and it was the ultimate like Warner Brothers flex on the world. We're going to put out Batman, and we're going to have Prince do the fucking soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But, Monty, it is always fun. Now, I will say to you, I'm not going to – just cause, so people can hear me say this to you, I every year ask Bomani to host while I'm gone because people always say, why can't you get Bomani? The problem is always in scheduling because you're taping when I'm on. Is, is, isn't that right? Right. And so that right. you, I, I think you would do it otherwise. You've often said that you yeah. wanted to, but you're always taping from 10 to noon and we can't do it. Yeah, like 10 to noon is prep time. Like I can't get everything else done and do something from 10 to noon. Yeah, so one of these days we will make it happen. But uh, uh, w- w- good job, my friend, and uh, I may even see you again. I'm going to come your way during my vacation, so maybe I'll get to see Poppy with his shirt off like I did the last time. Hey, man, just let me know. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, sir. Thank you, folks, very much for listening. Just a reminder, Bonobos, B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com. Best place for shirts, pants, uh, everything. They're one of our sponsors. Go check it out. And if you get 20% off if you use a promo code Matt Jones. 20% off Matt Jones. That's all that's all you gotta do. 20% off. That's a pretty good deal from Bonobos. B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com. If you want to look your best, if you want to look sharp, shirts, pants, uh, golf wear, whatever, bonobos.com. I buy clothes from it. Drew buys half of his wardrobe from it, and you can too. All shapes, all sizes, bonobos. Again, promo code Matt Jones for 20% off. We will see you all next episode. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Woo!